From KUAR News in Little Rock, this is a look at Arkansas news, politics, and more. Coming up. The legislature advances a proposal requiring colleges and universities to allow licensed faculty and staff to carry guns on campus, but an amendment to add training complicates the debate. A controversial bathroom bill targeting transgender people raises alarm from tourism officials who look at the impacts similar bills have had in other states. A tort reform proposal could go before voters next year after advancing in the Senate. We'll have more on the lively arguments for and against. Another abortion restriction advances, this time concerning the sex of the fetus. And finally, some non-legislative news, a look at plans for this year's Johnny Cash Heritage Festival, which raises money for the restoration of the music legend's boyhood hometown. For the week ending Friday, February 17, 2017, this is KUAR's Week in Review podcast. I'm Michael Heblin. And I'm Chris Hickey. Stay with us. Well, this has always been a really controversial item, the suggestion that, uh, Maybe schools should allow staff who are licensed to carry concealed weapons to take firearms on campus. Uh, It's long been policy at uh, most schools to uh, not allow any weapons inside. But the suggestion and the concern of lawmakers and others, the argument has been that, well, if you do ever have an active shooter situation, if police can't get there right away, you ought to have people who do know how to use firearms able to have that with them and to take action. Uh, very heated uh, debate, and uh, this is uh, again being taken up by the legislature this year. Uh, in 2013, lawmakers approved uh, a bill to allow uh, firearms on college and university campuses, those that uh, are public schools, but they included an opt-out provision. And pretty much every college and university has opted out. So the bill that uh, is now before the legislature would take away that option, would require public colleges and universities to let licensed faculty and staff carry firearms. Uh, Governor Asa Hutchinson spoke about that this week, uh, also referenced uh, his time as head of uh, Homeland Security, as he had uh, been facing uh, debates and uh, concerns about the ways to respond given instances that have uh, happened in the past. And uh, he spoke with reporters about this Thursday as uh, legislation is moving forward in the uh, House and Senate. I just uh, spoke to uh, Representative Collins and uh, asked if it does go through the Senate to uh, uh, meet with him to have a further discussion uh, from the and, and again, uh, one thing I've been strong on for the last uh, decade, uh, ever since Sandy Hook, when I undertook a responsibility uh, nationally to review safety in schools and the issue of violence in schools, and I recommended that we have the availability uh, of a firearm uh, in the classroom uh, uh, with staff that are properly trained as an option. We did leave that to the local school districts, but it goes to show that I have a history of supporting 
the safety in the classroom, and it has to be by armed personnel. The first uh, option is train law enforcement, school resource officers. We have those in our college campuses. The second option is uh, arming staff uh, that are properly trained. But I've always believed in that local option. So that's been my consistent policy. We're all going after safety in the classroom uh, and safety on our campuses. I know that's where Representative Collins is coming from as well. Uh, but there's some serious objections that have been raised uh, in terms of safety. And so I want to meet, uh, uh, depending on what happens in the Senate, uh, I want to have an opportunity to talk further with Representative Collins as well as the higher education officials that express some concern. Uh, they, there's hopefully a, a willingness to uh, address some of my concerns for uh, coordination training with uh, the law enforcement that's already on the campus. And there he's uh, referencing uh, Representative Charlie Collins, a Republican of Fayetteville. But Chris, this has uh, sparked a, a lot of debate, especially what kind of training these people uh, should have. Yeah, for up until, I guess, this week, you know, after this bill has passed the House um, by a majority of votes, uh, 71 votes for um, in the House of Representatives, it's, uh, you know, it's been kind of in this debate of, well, you know, you have on the one side, people who are for it say, you know, it adds this uh, measure of security uh, in the event of a potential mass shooter. Well, people are on the other side. Um, saying that, you know, it would probably increase the likelihood of accidents happening, um, you know, unintentional uh, firings of weapons and, and just people generally opposed to the proliferation of guns on campus. Um, so it came before a Senate committee this week um, at Wednesday. The Senate Judiciary Committee uh, held its first hearing about this, and Representative Collins was there uh, with his Senate co-sponsor, uh, Republican Trent Garner, uh, senator from El Dorado. And, uh, you know, they, they brought it up, and, you know, the, the committee room was packed, and a lot of opponents uh, spoke against it, including ASU System President Chuck Welsh, um, I think, as we mentioned, a lot of the heads of public universities in Arkansas are, are kind of against this uh, provision just because it doesn't give them that that option to opt out. But when it was brought into committee and they were making the arguments for uh, Senator Jeremy Hutchinson, he's the chairman of the Judiciary Committee in the Senate, introduced this amendment to the bill that would require additional training for these license holders who are faculty and staff active shooter training, 16 hours of it, kind of training that would be regulated by the state police. Um, people who take it, you know, would have to pay their own way. Of course, concealed carry license holders already undergo uh, some training. It's not active, tra active shooter training, but it's, you know, mostly along the lines of target practice and, you know, safety, care of the weapon and so forth. So this was uh, introduced in the committee, and it was voted down on a voice vote uh, pretty overwhelmingly. But the very next day, when after the bill passed out of the committee on a voice vote, there was only one Democrat on that committee, Will Bond of uh, Little Rock, who voted against it. So it advanced overwhelmingly through the committee, uh, came up in the Senate floor the very next day. Senator Hutchinson brought back this amendment, and... Um, Here's a cut of him introducing it on the on the floor and talking about why he thinks it's necessary. I think if we're going to mandate policy, 
which we are by telling university employers that they have to allow their employees to carry, that we ought to get the right policy. And I don't think anybody could argue that some training is better than no training. And, you know, he answered some questions and should note that the bill's sponsors, uh, both Representative Charlie Collins and uh, Senator Garner, both opposed this amendment. And uh, Senator Garner actually kind of expressed some frustration with the process uh, when he got up to speak against it. You know, I'm relatively new to the Senate. Uh, I'm learning as I go. But one of the things I thought existed before I got here was that common courtesy we had between each other about how bills and amendments should work. Representative Collins has been working on this bill for years. He's held hundreds of meetings, town halls with hostile crowds, discussing from different parties in this body and in the House. And this amendment, which was thrown on the 11th hour, didn't exist until yesterday. I didn't see it until I was actually presenting the bill with Representative Collins. This discussion has been had, it's been happened. You will all have reasonable concerns and questions about the bill itself. We will debate that in due time. But as we stand now, this bill is the bill that should go through. So Senator Gardner, he's a big Second Amendment guy. And, um, you know, he basically argues that, you know, one of the reasons he supports this is because uh, it should be one's, or he believes it should be one's constitutional right to carry a weapon um, pretty much anywhere. And he also argued that people who go through concealed carry training, um, it, you know, that training is already adequate. But this bill or this amendment did pass on a 21 to 10 vote, I believe. And it was applied to the bill, but the Senate uh, did not vote on the bill itself. So that's still, you know, stalled in the Senate for the time being. If the bill and the amendment passed, you know, have to go back to the House, so they, you know, they'd have to do that process before it could go to the governor. So we're kind of in a stall process here. Well, we did get uh, a little bit of a look at the uh, thoughts of uh, regular Arkansans about this. Uh, On Thursday, Talk Business and Politics and Hendricks College released a poll where they surveyed 440 likely voters on this issue. And uh, here's Roby Brock uh, explaining what they found. Well, a couple of takeaways on our poll in this question. Arkansas is a gun rights state, so we do see 61% versus 34% opposition to allowing faculty and staff to have a concealed carry weapon on campus. That number changes dramatically, though, when you ask about the opt-out clause that's the current law and the, the one that the legislation in the current session is trying to, be, uh, trying to change. Arkansans are pretty evenly split with about 40% saying college boards and trustees should make the decision to allow guns on campus versus 38% who oppose local control. This kind of shows the conflict where despite Arkansas voters supporting gun rights, they are conflicted on allowing for local control versus the state being in control. Another thing worth noting, uh, this subject matter has some very well-defined partisan lines. Republicans support concealed carry on college campuses by an 80% margin. Democrats are 60% opposed. Uh, And independents, they're even more in the middle. Just 55% support the concept. So we'll see if these numbers matter to the legislature as the issue is still a pretty hot political potato. And we'll see what happens uh, in the coming week. Another controversial item At this point, it's uh, only a shell bill, 
There are no specifics written into the legislation yet, but uh, this would be a bathroom bill. This is uh, said to be uh, similar to what has been passed uh, in other states, uh, North Carolina in particular. This was a very controversial proposal there. Uh, Republican Senator Gary Stubblefield, the backer of this bill, has said that uh, this would indeed uh, be like uh, that bill and other uh, bills uh, that are being considered by other states requiring people to use public bathrooms that correspond to the sex on their birth certificate. Well, this raised uh, a lot of concern for uh, the Little Rock Convention and Visitors Bureau. Uh, I spoke with Gretchen Hall, president and CEO, uh, about the concerns they immediately had. This bill was uh, filed this week, and uh, almost instantly her organization put out a press release, and I I spoke with her uh, about her concerns. Well, you know, we have followed um, North Carolina that actually passed into law a very similar piece of legislation a couple of years ago, and also uh, Texas has introduced similar legislation, and we have followed some of the impacts in those two states to the tourism industry, and the impacts are are quite substantial, and we're very concerned about that backlash happening here in Arkansas as well. What have been the uh, the impacts in those states? Sure. So North Carolina um, research has showed that they've suffered at least a $400 million loss in business, and that is from a variety of, of uh, pieces. So NCAA uh, has moved several tournaments outside of North Carolina Multiple companies have abandoned expansion plans or chosen not to locate in the state, resulting in thousands of lost jobs and thousands and millions of potential revenue um, for the state. Uh, Similarly, in Texas, their research shows that Texas could be looking at an $8.5 billion economic loss uh, and, according to the Texas Association of Business, up to 185,000 jobs. Uh, those are huge impacts. And here locally, you know, NCAA alone, uh, Little Rock and, and North Little Rock hosted uh, two very prestigious NCAA events in recent years with the NCAA men's um, basketball championships round one and two and also the NCAA women's basketball championships round one and two. And those had a tremendous economic impact here at home. And those events have said publicly that they will not come two destinations that implement similar laws. Have you uh, communicated this with uh, any lawmakers, the sponsors, or anyone? We have. We're trying to communicate with uh, the Senate Judiciary Committee uh, about these talking points and some of the research that we have found um, in North Carolina and Texas, as well as the impact we think um, that it will have here locally. You know, I think it, it is definitely worth noting that tourism is Arkansas's second largest economic industry um, and it a total impact of $7.2 billion per year. And I think, you know, people really need to take a hard look at the economic trickle effect uh, that, that a bill like this could potentially have that would really damage um, that impact to our state economy. And the governor was also uh, asked about this bill on Thursday uh, and pretty much told reporters he doesn't think it's necessary. Let's retrace the steps a little bit. Whenever President Obama uh, came out with uh, his guidance from the Department of Education last year uh, mandating uh, uh, the use of uh, facilities uh, for those that uh, 
identified with uh, uh, their own orientation that might be different than their birth certificate. Uh, I uh, made a statement and sent out guidance to our state that we should uh, disregard that guidance from Washington, that we're handling these sensitive matters very well at the local school district level, and that I see no problem that needs to be addressed from a national perspective. And since then, uh, that position has been uh, justified and verified because the courts have struck down President Obama's guidance. And just, I believe, yesterday, the new Attorney General Jeff Sessions said he would not defend that position in court and direct the Department of Justice not to defend that. And so uh, all of the Washington effort to set those minutiae and guidelines for uh, these issues uh, of delicacy and privacy in our schools, that's off the, off the charts, uh, has, has been uh, uh, revoked and changed from a Washington perspective. I don't think we in Arkansas, one, have a problem that cannot be addressed at the local school district level. Uh, we don't have a problem. There's not any problem from Washington. And I don't think that we need to be dictating uh, those very sensitive matters that are handled in our schools. We don't need to be dictating those from uh, the state capitol. And so uh, for that reason, I don't think there's a, a need for any legislation. So at this point, we don't know uh when this will be uh, taken up, uh, it would be by the uh, Senate Judiciary Committee. But Chris, I guess this is uh, one of those bills that pretty much uh, every state where you have a, a Republican majority uh, is taking up. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, we kind of were expecting it long before the session even occurred. And, you know, reporters were asking questions of the governor and others about, you know, like, would they resist something along these lines and you know i i mean that that's as close as a definitive statement as i think the governor will get um but i think he's he's fairly resistant to the idea of a transgender bathroom bill i mean at the same time we've had other predictions of bills that we expected to be uh filed um you know regardless of you know the ideological persuasion of our legislature um i would surmise that most people still expect, but have not seen yet a um, bill to separate Martin Luther King Day from Robert E. Lee Day, which we haven't seen yet. Well, uh, another proposal that now moves to the House after uh, being approved in the Senate would uh, potentially put a constitutional amendment before voters in the uh, November 2018 election. Uh, Chris, this involves a uh, tort reform, and you followed uh, much of the debate on that this week. Yeah, well, what's the heart, at the heart of it is placing limitations on on awards and kind of medical injury and workplace injury lawsuits. Uh, currently, Arkansas has no um, mechanism or law that you know restricts the amount of uh, awards or amount of money a jury can award in one of those lawsuits, like, say, a nursing home negligence case or, or something. There was an attempt, um, I think, in 2003. It was struck down by the courts. So Senate Joint Resolution 8, which is uh, sponsored by Senator Missy Irvin, Republican from Mountain View, she is the main sponsor of this proposed constitutional amendment, which is could be one of three that the legislature can refer to voters in the next general election, which is 2018. 
it seems to have the most traction out of any of these proposals, and there have been more than 30 filed. And it has, you know, the most co-sponsors out of any, certainly, nearly 70 co-sponsors in the House and Senate. It was voted on in the Senate uh, this week, and like I said, it places caps of uh, $250,000 on most awards in, in medical or workplace injury lawsuits. It also caps attorney's fees, contingency fees, to a third of the total settlement, and it also uh, rewrites some rules in um, for courtroom procedure. Currently, the Arkansas Supreme Court uh, has authority over rulemaking um, in the court system. This would transfer that authority to the legislature. So the legislature would be able to write the rules for the courts. All three of these uh, parts of the proposal are kind of controversial in a, in a sense, but likely to pass out of the legislature. Uh, here's Missy Irvin. She says that this is really about creating an economic boon for the state because currently businesses experience this uncertainty of, you know, do they hold money to in case they're liable for some lawsuit in the future uh, that could cost millions of dollars? Uh, it dissuades businesses from coming here and establishing operations. So she, here's her opening remarks on SJR 8. SJR 8, which is before you, is a game-changing piece of legislation for the state of Arkansas. This is pro-growth policy of civil justice reform that will make Arkansas more competitive in winning businesses and investments to our state, which will add more jobs for our citizens. It will grow our economy into a robust engine for greater economic development all across the state of Arkansas. Now, she frequently mentions that more than a uh, dozen states, including some neighboring states, have implemented some kind of uh, reform along these lines, tort reform, limiting uh, lawsuit awards. And uh, she says there's research to prove their economic benefits, but she I haven't heard her cite any specific research. Um, the senators who are opposed to this and lawmakers who are opposed to this are opposed for different reasons. Um, some are more concerned about the awards caps, some are more concerned about the attorney's fees, and some were concerned about the transfer of authority for rulemaking from the Supreme Court to the legislature on court rules. I'll play you a cut here from Senator Linda Chesterfield. She's a Democrat from Little Rock, talking specifically about this uh, transfer of power from the Supreme Court to the legislature. What frightens me is this creeping infringement of the legislature on the other two branches of government. It's a creeping kind of thing. We decided last time that we were going to offer an amendment that said the executive branch does not have the right to act as the executive branch without the legislature approving everything that they do. It's a creeping infringement. Now we're talking about the usurpation of the power of the Supreme Court. Our system of checks and balances is very important. It is the cornerstone of our democracy. And I submit to you that when we look at this line, line two, subject to the approval of the General Assembly, we don't know jack spread about pleadings. We don't know jack spread about any of it. But we are usurping the authority of the courts. Who is going to check us? Now, Chesterfield and some others also criticized the uh, placing limitations on the award amounts. And she said, 
here's a quote. It amazes me that every time we start talking about something that's going to hurt the little guy, we call it reform. This is something that is not reform, she says, because people often refer to this as tort reform. I'll play you a cut of Senator Jeremy Hutchinson again. Um, He didn't have any problems with the cap on awards, but he did have some problems with the court rules provisions and also the caps on attorney's fees. We're going to cap what an attorney can make, and that is popular. I mean, who doesn't want to hit attorneys? Uh, I, I promise you, that's not going to affect my practice. I don't get 50% contingency fees. I rarely get any contingency fees. But what, what you're doing, conservatives, those are two private parties contracting with each other. And we, as a state legislature, God forbid we do this when it comes to the sale of furniture, we would never, never say, I'm not going to let a furniture salesman make more than 3% or 33%. We would never, in a million years, I hope, it's called price fixing. It's socialism, folks. That is what socialism is. When you set prices from the government telling individual parties what they can contract for. But because it's a lawyer, screw our principles. Let's do it. Now, you kind of heard him refer to, but he's he, um, Jeremy Hutchinson is also a lawyer. Yeah. Um, now, uh, Senator Missy Irvin, I'm just going to play her cut from her closing remarks, kind of responding uh, in particular to the provision on court rules and, um, you know, her defense of that. Any legislation we pass does run the risk of the Supreme Court saying no to this legislative body. The legislative body is the people's body. We are a citizen legislature. That is what we do. We bring the people that we represent their voice to this body. I heard that this was a wholesale takeover of the judicial system. No, this is not a wholesale takeover of the judicial system. What they did in Amendment 80 was a wholesale takeover of the legislative branch. Now, I should explain Amendment 80 was passed by voters in uh, 2000, in the year 2000, and it actually gave the Supreme Court the authority to write rules on the court that had actually been previously done by the legislature. So in a way, this is a reversal of that uh, amendment. Now, um, I'll just note that, you know, this debate went on for almost an hour, and the vote actually kind of cut across party lines a little bit. Most Republicans voted for it. Most Democrats voted against it, but there are some Republicans that voted against it. As you heard, Jeremy Hutchinson, he's a Republican. He didn't like it. There are, I think, two others that voted against it on his side, um, on the Republican side. Um, There are a few members that didn't vote. Um, So, uh, you know, but by and large, it's a very popular measure in the legislature. Um, And it's going to go to the House next. And in the House, it already has like 53 sponsors. <laughs> mm. So they already have a majority, you know, uh, to uh, to pass it there. So so if it's uh, passed, it would go to voters and the legislature can uh, put three constitutional amendments. Yeah. So this is the leading one. And like I said, there are at least 30 others that are kind of in the process being discussed in committee. This one had always been kind of 
the apple the legislator's eye for you know i guess since the beginning of the session they they've wanted to do tort reform you know in this past election for instance you know we had a kind of a similar type measure that limited gave the legislature the power to limit award amounts in medical injury lawsuits that was uh, struck down by the state supreme court because of a wording of the ballot title Interesting thing, though, with these uh, ballot items that the legislature refers to the people, you know, the ballot title can't really be altered or attorney general can't say, you know, you have to rewrite this. So it's kind of set in stone. It's pretty much almost an assured thing that if it passes the legislature, it'll be in the ballot uh, in a year and a half. (laughs) Well, one final legislative item and uh, then we'll move on. There's a bill that moves to the Senate, another abortion-related bill. This one would impose fines and prison time, up to a year in prison, on doctors who perform abortions that are based solely on whether a woman wants to have a boy or a girl. This was uh, approved in the House with uh, little discussion. Uh, Only uh, Representative uh, Charlie Collins, the bill's sponsor, uh, spoke for it, and uh, then a vote was taken. Uh, Here's what he uh, told his colleagues about this uh, sex selection bill. About five years ago, I was talking with somebody, and we were talking about global nations and talking about China. And uh, one of the things I mentioned was how they've really um, disrupted their future based on some policies that they put in place and how it had harmed women and and some different things, including uh, sex selection abortions. And the individual mentioned to me, well, that's not against the law in Arkansas either. And so I initially intended to do something with this then, but there were some other things happening and the timing wasn't right. So I'm bringing it to you now um, because what I've discovered is it's always a difficult timing to bring these sensitive issues forward. But, but I think this is something we need to do. Uh, the way the bill operates is if a uh, woman goes for an abortion, the doctor simply asks her, do you know the sex of the child? Uh, and, and if the answer is no, then things proceed apace. If the answer is yes, then the doctor informs her that it's illegal in Arkansas to do that, which I think may have a, a prophylactic effect, actually. Uh, the other element is someone might argue, well, how big of an issue is this today? You can't even discover the sex of a child until you're almost to the point of Supreme Court recognized viability anyway. Well, those technologies are changing. I'm already hearing about tests that can start to determine the sex of a child at, say, nine weeks, and, you know, three years, five years, ten years from now, who knows where this will be. And by a vote of 79 to 3, it was uh, passed in the House. No one spoke against it, so now we'll see what happens in the Senate. But, Chris, this is another one of these preemptive kind of uh, bills that lawmakers are saying may not be applicable now, but maybe in the future. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's you know, another in a string of abortion-related bills that we've seen in the legislature. Uh, I mean, the I guess the chief among them was one that banned a certain procedure, evacuation and dilation, uh, for the second trimester, which was probably the most controversial thus far. I should also note the Senate passed uh, on Thursday another abortion-related bill that still has to go to the House. It wasn't as controversial, but it was uh, a measure uh, stipulating that any time a fetus that's been attempted to be aborted uh, in a clinic would have to be um, the it mandates that the person or doctor 
practicing the procedure would have to do everything they can to save the infant. And that was passed on a 34 to nothing vote. But yeah, it's just one of many bills that are that are dealing with abortion this year. Okay, well, we'll be back on the uh, legislative beat next week when they uh, come back and uh, a lot more uh, stuff still in the works. Uh, on to uh, crime and uh, joining us in the studio, Karen Trico-Stewart. Hi, Michael. It's good to be with you. You uh, followed a, a press conference this week. We had the uh, U.S. attorney uh, and uh, a lot of uh, law enforcement uh, leaders come together to talk about uh, crime in this state, and in particular uh, Little Rock and West Memphis, which have uh, seen uh, a lot of violence over the years. Right, yeah, and I think it's important to note that while violent crime um, has been in, in decline in much of the country, there are uh, troubling spikes in certain cities. And so uh, Little Rock and West Memphis were identified as uh, being uh, two of those cities, and there are 15 sites around the country that were part of this initiative called the Violence Rejection Network, and it was created by the Department of Justice um, under uh, Sally Yates when she was um, U.S. Uh, Deputy U.S. Attorney General. And so um, Little Rock and West Memphis have been part of this program for about a year and a half. Um, And so the press conference was about uh, the U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Arkansas saying it's it's been really helpful. Now, as I noted, it's it's in its infancy, so um, it's hard to measure effectiveness, but they were uh, giving a lot of praise to the program. And uh, we have a couple of uh, uh, cuts here, some of the people who spoke. Yeah, um, so the the U.S. attorney for the uh, Eastern District of Arkansas, his name is Chris Thayer, um, he admitted that when they were approached uh, by the feds that he had some skepticism about um, law enforcement in Arkansas being part of this project. Um, And so uh, he said this. No one, not even those department heads in Washington, would dare tell you that participating in the VRN will cure the violence problem within a city. It is not designed to, nor could it ever achieve such a goal. Rather, it is a tool, and one of many tools, to be used by VRN cities in an effort to stem the violence that plagues far too many of our cities across the country. Right, and then so um, he also said that he's come to realize that this initial uh, skepticism that he had was misplaced and that it's it's been a great effort in terms of uh, opening the lines of communication between federal and uh, state law enforcement. So does this uh, continue? Yeah, so the program uh, lasts two years, and then they'll pick uh, more cities after that, I believe. And so uh, there's there's about a year, a little less than a year left to go. Well, on to uh, a lighter topic here as we uh, wrap up this week's podcast. And in the interest of full disclosure, I am not a non-objective person here talking about the Johnny Cash Heritage Festival taking place later this year. This has uh, been an ongoing project. Uh, Arkansas State University acquired the boyhood home of Johnny Cash, an incredible country music icon, even transcends uh, country music. But uh, his boyhood home was in the town of Dias, which was a New Deal colony created in 1934 as part of President Franklin Delano Roosevelt's New Deal to uh, aid 500 families. Johnny Cash's family was uh, picked to be uh, one of the families that was chosen to come on to this uh, new town. Uh, They were given a piece of land 
uh, had to uh, grow crops, eventually repay the government. But uh, he often spoke about the impact that uh, this had on his uh, formation. So uh, this week, uh, Arkansas State University, which uh, acquired the property as part of its Arkansas Heritage Sites program, uh, announced plans for this year's festival. I should back up and say it was just uh, six years ago that this uh, old farmhouse that the Cash family lived in and uh, moved into when Johnny Cash was five uh, was in terrible condition. It was well-known among music fans around the world. It was uh, often visited, but was just uh, about ready to fall down. And uh, in 2011, ASU held its first concert to raise money for the project. Uh, In that year, you had Roseanne Cash, Chris Christopherson, Rodney Crowell, George Jones. Uh, And in subsequent years, there have been more festivals. Well, this year, they announced after taking one year off last year, the lineup for uh, this year's uh, festival. And uh, I'll play here a segment from the uh, press conference that took place on Monday. Uh, Roseanne Cash spoke, uh, Johnny Cash's uh, daughter, and uh, also starts here with uh, Johnny Cash's sister, Joanne Cash Yates. I'm very grateful to all of you that have had a part in this project. Uh, There are not enough words in our English language to express how much it means to us as the Cash family of all your hard work and what you've accomplished. It's, uh, it's, a, it's just a part of our lives that we'll always have with us as long as we're here. And I just, if anybody's got any questions uh, you want to ask, we're open for that. But I want to introduce Roseanne. Uh, she's uh, my brother Johnny's oldest daughter, and we kind of all grew up together. We're, we're like sisters, and here's Roseanne that I love so dearly. Hi. Thank you, Ruth. Uh, I also want to express my gratitude to um, ASU, to Ruth, and to the mayor of Dias, who's been so welcoming here. Yes. And, um, you know, I get a lot of requests for to participate in Johnny Cash projects, Every week, it seems like I get something, and I've said no to 99% of them because I figured that's it's not my business, it's other people's projects. This was the one. This project is so close to my heart. Yes. And um, like the chancellor said, that he didn't see an interview with my dad, that he didn't mention how formative growing up here was for him and how his music was seeded from this very soil and the hard work and the family and he took such great pride in it. He did not uh, romanticize picking cotton for one second (laughs) but he knew the value of um, learning a work ethic that was founded in the hard work that they did and he took that work ethic with him his whole life and um, it's close to my heart because of that, because of how close it was to my dad and how important it was. I have a letter that he wrote my mother when he was in the Air Force that you have in the uh, administration building where he said, every rock and every stone of this place means something to me. And I think of that every time I'm here. Um, as well as being um, my family history here, my ancestry, 
It's such an important part of American history. People don't think about the New Deal and the Works Progress Administration and what that meant to Americans when it happened. I guess maybe it's, it's too close and not close enough for us to really um, take in the gravity of what that meant for Americans. And 500 desperately poor families moved to Dias, Arkansas because FDR created a WPA community here and it saved them, and the Cash family moved here in 1935, and they were saved by that program. And I don't say that to exaggerate at all. Um, I made a record in, that came out in 2014 called The River and the Thread, partly inspired by coming here, by being in the sunken lands of Arkansas. And in fact, one of the songs is called The Sunken Lands. And uh, that album won three Grammys, so it seems like other people care about the sunken lands, too. <laughs> I know. It's a, little, it's a little bit obnoxious to tell you that, but you know, I'm going to tell you. <laughs> it's all right. Um, anyway, on Saturday, October 21st, I have the great pleasure to perform myself that uh, late afternoon and the for the first time to bring music to that field, to perform in that field That's next right. to the house. Yes. And I will be joined by Chris Christopherson. One of, uh, one of my dad's closest and dearest friends. Like, they were like brothers. They were. And uh, Chris said, the sunken lands, what a perfect name. <laughs> so we... So look forward to seeing all of you there on October 21st. This is going to be so special to bring music to that field, the field that they picked cotton. That's where it started. Yeah. Yeah, so in previous years, the uh, festival has always been on the uh, ASU campus in Jonesboro at the Convocation Center, but this year it will actually be taking place right next to uh, Johnny Cash's boyhood home in what was their uh, cotton fields. So, Michael, you've been uh, covering this story for for years, and and, uh, you've done some award-winning stories on it. In journalism, we always ask, well, um, why, you know, why should people care? And so I wanted to ask you that in terms of what do you think is the biggest takeaway um, for this and and just what people should know? It is uh, more than just music. Uh, Johnny Cash is someone who, as an artist, his music has resonated now long after his death, and uh, that draws people to the area. Uh, But the whole, what happened in uh, Memphis, Sun Studio, where he began, uh, that uh, still strikes such a chord with people. I have met people there at the Johnny Cash house who have come from all around the world. Uh, I know when I did uh, one story for NPR about it in uh, 2012, uh, there just happened to be a guy from South Africa, who had just come over after uh, seeing uh, Sun Studio in Memphis and uh, Stax. And, uh, but it goes, as uh, Roseanne Cash there, beyond music, even the history of the New Deal and uh, kind of experimental programs, things that were tried in this country may not necessarily have worked out as uh, they hoped, but uh, it's significant in so many ways, music, history, and uh, it's just good that uh, this place has uh, still been preserved, that it was uh, when it was so close to the edge that uh, it was uh, preserved. So uh, I hope to be there. I don't think I, 
I have caught uh, most of the uh, festivals. Uh, the last one two years ago uh, with uh, Willie Nelson and Roseanne Cash, uh, I was there for that. Uh, I don't think they had one last year, but uh, look forward to uh, being there uh, this year and being there in uh, Dias. Uh, in the uh, restoration, it's gone beyond just the uh, Johnny Cash boyhood home, but they've also restored uh, what was the uh, movie theater that is now the uh, visitor center, the administration building. And the next step in the restoration at the cash site is uh, rebuilding uh, the outbuildings, the outhouse, the chicken coop, uh, little places like that that are, of course, long gone. But to have the full experience of what it was like for them as a family uh, growing up there during the Great Depression in the 1930s. Well, you're you're definitely... Well educated on the topic, and we we appreciate uh, your reports during the year. Well, thank you. And we'll close out here. Take us out with uh, Roseanne Cash. Thanks for listening to this week's Week in Review podcast. I'm Michael Hiplin. I'm Chris Hickey. And I'm Karen Trico-Stewart. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, or you can listen to it each week at KUAR.org. KUAR is a listener-supported service at the University of Arkansas at Little Rock. Thanks for listening, and have a good weekend.